Please be... Thank you for that song. A new one on me, but very fitting and uh, very helpful as we begin this afternoon. You up for some more teaching? Great, good. Let's turn to chapter 5. And note as we do so that the chapter divisions and indeed the verse divisions are much later and they really interrupt this story in a most unhelpful way. I'm going to read from chapter 5 verse 13 to chapter 6 verse 5 and it all flows on as you will see. Now when Joshua was, was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. A country church wanted to remove its pews in order to facilitate mission. They had tried twice before and failed, and they knew that this was a spiritual battle. By the way, none of you has ever encountered this sort of scenario, have you? (laughs) And don't try and identify this church because it's not in this diocese, okay? So they asked God how to proceed. And one of them had a picture of the main street in the village with a whole lot of stakes set in the ground in intervals. What does that mean? So, you pray and ask God for the meaning, and this was what emerged. Now, when you think of a stake, you also think of stakeholders. And what you so often get in villages is people who don't come near the church, except for hatchings, matchings, and dispatchings, who think that they have a stake in their local church and what happens and whether or not the pews should remain. So, what to do? The answer seemed to be, in the spiritual realm, to take out those stakes and smash them. And so, that is what they did. And then they planted the cross of Christ in each of the holes where the stakes had been. And it's very interesting because one of the people who joined in that said to me afterwards, I sensed the battle. I felt almost nauseous. Now, can I add that they did 
other things that are very important in the spiritual warfare as well. They praised God, they confessed sin, that of themselves and others, they declared truth, they offered prayers of intercession. But the stakes were very significant. And God gave them the victory third time over. Hallelujah. That reminds us that this world is a battleground and that the real enemy is spiritual. We know it well, but we need to remind ourselves. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Human adversaries are not the real ones. It is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. The reason we need to call that to mind constantly is not only so that we will fight the battle on the spiritual front, but also it will keep us from getting angry and resentful against the human opponents when we understand that they're not the real ones, but just being used by the enemy for his purposes. So, how are we to fight spiritual battles? How are we going to make sure that we experience victory in the spiritual warfare? What can we learn from Jericho? Number one, honour the commander. Here is uh, Joshua's first big test as the leader of the people once they've crossed Jordan. The first big test in taking some of these significant cities. And I guess that being human... This was a time of suspense and anxiety for him, trying hard to trust in the Lord, but thinking, how are we going to do it? So he's out on his own, it seems, reconnoitering uh, outside Jericho. And he's asking himself, now, how many siege ladders will I need to get up these walls? How many battering rams in order to breach the walls? And suddenly, he meets a man who looks like a soldier, who's carrying a drawn sword. And he asks the pretty obvious question, whose side are you on? Are you one of our allies or one of our enemies? And the man says to the effect that I'm not simply one of your allies. I am the overall commander in this battle. And he says, verse 15 of chapter 5, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And so he's implying that Joshua needs to submit to him and put himself under the command of this figure. So the question is, who is this person who describes himself as the commander of the army of the Lord? Who is that person? It's Jesus This, we believe, is one of the handful of appearances that Jesus made in bodily form before he came to earth in the incarnation that first Christmas. It happened to Abraham when three visitors came to him and after a while one of them starts talking to him on his own and is referred to as the Lord. It happened to Gideon when the angel of the Lord visits him, and then a few verses later it says, the Lord said this. This is Jesus, 
in pre-incarnate form. And when we get rid of that chapter division and see how the narrative flows on, then I think that substantiates this claim. Because in verse 2 it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua. So this commander of the army of the Lord is the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus. And it's at that point that he gives him the clear instructions on how to take Jericho. In addition to that, it's perfectly clear that Joshua understood who he was talking to because his response in verse 14 is to fall face down on the ground and to say, what message does my Lord have for his servant? So here is Joshua submitting to the supreme commander in the spiritual warfare and taking directions for him about the strategy to be adopted. Now I think that this links directly with the command in James chapter 4 and verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you, because I've only quoted half the verse. And the first half of that verse is really important. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In the spiritual warfare, you can know victory only if you submit to the supreme commander and are under his instructions. I remember reading years ago a book by Michael Harper. And he said, on one occasion, a lady came to me and said this, look, the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I find that when I try to resist him, he flies at me. And he reminded her of the first half of this verse. You need to submit your life to God. Then you can resist the devil and claim the promise that he will flee from you. So in the spiritual warfare, we need to be submitted to the Lord. Needless to say, not only at those times when the battle is fierce, but in our daily lives honouring him as Lord with a life of daily obedience. Second thing follows on, obviously, await orders. As we have heard, Joshua says in verse 14, what message does my Lord have for his servant? That is important because the message, the strategy, will be different on every occasion. We'll come back to that. And so on this occasion, the Lord says, you're to take the ark. Remember, the symbol of God's presence. Let the priests carry it, and some of them go ahead with trumpets in their hands. Let the army march round behind them once a day, keeping quiet. But then on the seventh day, march seven times, and at the end, make a loud shout, and the walls will fall down. Now, you won't find that approach in any textbook of military strategy. But it's God's way of doing things. This is spiritual warfare. And that's why worldly weapons are ineffective. And we've quoted this once before from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 
and they're weapons that may look weak and useless, but when we use them under God's direction, then he gives uh, victory. Do we have an uh, outline for this, or has it gone unstuck somehow? So the first main thing was to honour the commander. The second is to wait orders. And we're talking about the weapons, and there are several actually here in this passage. The first one is praise. Because obviously trumpets speak of praising God. Now let's come to this lovely King Jehoshaphat, who I think is a most amazing king. There is a coalition of five armies that are coming against Israel, a vast army attacking them. And being a godly man, Jehoshaphat calls on the people to fast and pray. And as a result of looking to God, they get a most wonderful encouraging, clear word of prophecy. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. That's faith. For us, faith in the victory of the cross. A couple of verses later, verse 17 of Second Chronicles 20. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance which the Lord will give you. And so Jehoshaphat, obviously at the direction of the Lord, sends out the choir ahead of the army. Again, that's not in any military strategy textbook that I know of. And they are singing, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. And... Uh, there you've got it on the screen. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah. They were defeated. In fact, they turned in on themselves and began to fight each other. And so there was another strategy, strategy of praise, sending out the choir in front of the army. The devil hates praise. And we need to know that. It can be a very useful weapon. Uh, when Helen and I started ministering to people many years ago, we soon found that there were times when we had to deal with evil spirits. Sometimes they would be stubborn. And one of the thoughts that came, I'm sure, from the Lord was, well, sing. So we would sing something like, praise the name of Jesus. He's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Or, in the name of Jesus, we have the victory. Now, I don't know whether it was the praise or whether the enemy couldn't stand the sound of my singing voice. <laughs> but it often helped and got us unstuck. Now, <laughs> I've not been able to do that in the pump room, but if some of these rooms, Anne, are fairly soundproof, uh, then who knows in the future. Uh, but uh, praise is a powerful weapon. <clears throat> and let me just add 
Along with praise goes prayer, although it's not specifically mentioned in this passage. And along with prayer can go fasting, again, not mentioned in this passage, although it is mentioned in the Jehoshaphat passage that they prayed and fasted. Arthur Wallace wrote this about fasting. In giving us the weapon of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon in our spiritual armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete. She has thrown it down in a corner to rust, and there it has laid, forgotten for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. But I'm trying to give you what's in the passage and not import too much from outside. Let's come back to the passage. Words of declaration and command. There is this shout on the seventh day. And I'll have some suggestions in a few moments about what they may have shouted. But I think the point is this. Words have power. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And when we declare Scripture, or when we declare words that God has given us, and declare them in the name of Jesus, they have power to rout the enemy. I hope your church celebrated the fact at the end of October that it was the 500th year of the start of the Reformation under Martin Luther. We would not be here today, perhaps, if it were not for that man. We would still be struggling and striving to earn our salvation instead of resting in Jesus and what he has done. So let me quote from his wonderful hymn, A Safe Stronghold. And let the prince of ill look grim as e'er he will. He harms us not a whit, for why? His doom is writ. A word shall quickly slay him. I like that, don't you? A word shall quickly slay him. So what sort of words were these? I think they were words of declaration. Did they declare the battle is the Lord's? Did they declare, the city is ours? A wonderful declaration we can make is quite simply, Jesus is Lord. Again, that's something I often do when coming against the enemy. And it's very interesting, when David Watson was going round in the last years of his ministry, he would encourage his congregations to say with him the festal shout, as he called it which was quite simply, the Lord reigns. And so the whole congregation would say, the Lord reigns. And then he might name a particular situation briefly, and they'd all say, the Lord reigns. Then over something else, the Lord reigns. And I remember hearing him say, I have seen the faith level of congregations rise as we have declared that festal shout that the Lord reigns. Declaring truth, declaring scripture. A pastor friend of mine was going through a very difficult situation in his church. As so often, it was a power struggle. How sad that so often that's what tears churches apart. So on several occasions, I went to visit him and his wife to pray with them, try and support and encourage them. Second time I was there, as I started to pray... That verse that we've quoted already came to me. No weapon that is fashioned against you will prevail. So I spoke it out loud in my prayer. And I felt prompted 
this is important. Say it a second time. So I said it a second time. And I sensed that something significant was happening. And then the verse came to me, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And I declared that. And by this time, the Spirit of God was heavy on me. And I was quite overcome emotionally and physically. And then I was prompted to declare, he who has called you is faithful and he will do it. And I knew that something powerful was happening in the spiritual realm, that something broke at that point. And when we'd finished praying, uh, my friend and his wife agreed. And in fact, I felt at the end of that as if I'd been through 10 rounds in the boxing ring. I was totally overcome physically and emotionally. It took about 10 minutes to recover. This is what spiritual warfare can be like on occasions. And we three felt that God had given us those scriptures and that although something had broken, we needed to go on declaring them. So for several months, every morning, Helen and I, when we prayed, would declare those scriptures and he and his wife would. And the situation didn't seem to be going the right way, seemed to be deteriorating. And then suddenly, at the last minute, the Lord turned everything around. And that church is much more stable and much more peaceful now. Uh, although sadly not without a loss of some people. So I learned even more clearly from that experience the power of declaring scripture. And actually Helen and I are praying for a situation in another country at the moment where a long history of injustice is being challenged. And so whenever we pray about that, we are declaring, let justice flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-failing stream. There might also have been words of command. They might, for example, have shouted out, walls, fall down in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Certainly we have authority over the enemy to speak words of command to him. We're joined to Jesus through faith. We share in his victory. We have authority over the enemy. And we need to know that authority and to exercise it confidently and not tentatively. We need to know, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that we have full authority in Jesus' name to command the enemy to go. That is true, I touched on this in deliverance ministry. When Jesus encountered an evil spirit, he said, come out. When Paul confronts the evil spirit in the slave girl in Acts 15. He says, in the name of Jesus, come out. There is power in words. And we can use words in other ways too. For example, cutting people free from ungodly ties. I was preaching at a friend's church a couple of months ago and he came to me in the coffee time and said, I am really, really struggling at work and basically his boss was bullying him and making life really difficult and they were arguing and so on. And uh, so we just stood there in the middle of the coffee time and prayed. And I really felt God saying, you need to cut the ungodly ties between this boss and your friend. So I simply did that in the name of Jesus. And there was a manifest reaction. 
And we prayed one, two other things as well. But that was very much at the heart of it. A few days later, I received an email from my friend. I'm a new man. Things are completely different. And another email six weeks on. We haven't argued once. People in the office are remarking at the difference. That is the power of words when we use them under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Or I have a testimony from someone uh, who realized in a ministry time that her mother had spoken words which not only bound her mother but bound the daughter as well to the effect of, I can't do this, speaking all the while of her inability and inadequacy. And the daughter realized that she was being held by those words. And so those who were praying with her broke the power of those words in her life. And I tell you, since then, her ministry has taken off and she's flying, whereas before she was ineffective. We can break the power of those kind of negative pronouncements on people's lives in the name of Jesus. Here's a commercial. We deal with this sort of thing in healing training course number two, which is coming up again next year. Watch the website. Come and enroll because these are powerful weapons in the spiritual warfare that you need to know about. Next weapon is that of righteousness. And really, I'm going to be dealing with this fully at the next session when we talk about trying to take the city of Ai. Because initially the Israelites suffer a serious defeat because there's sin in the camp. But you'll have to wait for that one till the next session. But we've got this lovely quotation from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7 that one of our weapons is truthful speech and another is the weapon of righteousness in the right hand and the left hand. So... The second main point is that we need to await orders because God's strategy is different on every occasion. It would have been no use um, Joshua saying, well, to take AI, we need to march around once a day for seven days, etc. It wouldn't have worked. As we shall see, the strategy was different to set an ambush. So, my friends, if it should be that you want to get rid of the pews in your church... Don't think, ah, all we have to do is to pull out spiritual stakes and plant the cross in their place. That may not be the strategy for you. If you've got a power struggle in your church, don't think, ah, all we need to do is to keep declaring those three scriptures. The strategy may be different to break the power of the enemy. Seek God for his strategy. And then thirdly, obey precisely. And we keep on coming back to this, that God is looking for obedience and detailed obedience. So they marched around once a day for seven days. They kept their mouths shut as commanded. And then they marched around seven times on the seventh day with this loud shout, whatever it was. And hallelujah. The walls collapsed and they were able to go in and take the city. At which point, of course, they obeyed God's command to kill all the citizens, men, women and children and all the animals. 
And that, of course, can constitute an enormous problem for people. I think in many ways that the answer is in a very important section of Deuteronomy's gospel chapter, Deuteronomy's gospel, dear me, Deuteronomy chapter 18. And uh, this is important. When you, verse 9, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. That's a strong word, detestable, and it occurs three times. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. That is what the nations in the land of Canaan were doing. Child sacrifice burned in the fire. That is an abomination to God. That is detestable to God. And by the way, lest we feel more superior than them, remember that October also marked the 50th anniversary of the passing of the abortion law in this country, and eight and a half million babies have been killed in the womb as a result of that. And yes, I know there are some difficult, difficult cases in among those and some tragic situations, but that's something that we Christian people ought to be deeply concerned about and praying about and where we can taking action on. So, child sacrifice and then lots of other things as well, divination, sorcery, interpreting omens, witchcraft, casting spells, mediumship, spiritism, consulting the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord and because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. That is what the people were engaging in whom the Israelites slaughtered when they took the land. I think it helps to explain it to us. God is a God of holiness and there comes a time concerning sin when he says enough is enough. So, the point is that they obeyed explicitly. And actually, I guess they probably didn't find it easy putting women, certainly children, to death. But they obeyed exactly as God said. I think there are three possible hindrances to obedience for them and for us. The first is impatience. Uh, <clears throat> verse 10 Joshua commanded the people, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word, until the day I tell you to shout. And maybe they got bored by about day five or day six, marching round and nothing was happening. They wanted to jump the gun. No, wait for God's timing. Here's a wonderful quotation from a 19th century Baptist preacher, Alexander McLaren, in Manchester. Divine omnipotence is never in a hurry. Wait God's timing. He's got all of eternity to work. Uh, And again, just a little aside, sometimes when people ask for prayer, they have to wait for several weeks before there's someone available to pray with them. Don't regard that as an unfortunate delay. See that God is in that and that he can prepare the heart of the person needing prayer so that they're really ready when the ministry appointment comes. 
God's timing is always right. Secondly, mockery. As we've said, these strategies of God for victory seem foolish in the eyes of the world. And if you can let your imagination go for a moment, can you not imagine that the occupants of Jericho, some of them would have been looking down from the walls and laughing and jeering? What on earth are they playing at? How on earth do they think that is going to help? Where are the ladders? Where are the battering rams? What foolishness is this? And sometimes the world will laugh at you and me. Well, remember, they jeered at Jesus on the cross. And, of course, the ever-present danger, unbelief. Well, if we simply march around the walls and shout, will anything happen? If I just say half a dozen words of command in the name of Jesus, will anything happen? Don't let the devil put unbelief on you. So God is looking for obedience, even when it's foolish, even when it costs. And remember that faith is spelt R-I-S-K, yeah. And that God will give us the courage to step out. And lastly, expect victory. Chapter 6, verse 2, God says to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Say, wait a minute, that's the wrong tense. I have delivered, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, the theologians call this the prophetic perfect. In other words, it is so certain that it will happen that you can speak about it as if it has already happened. Actually, it's something that we sometimes use in our own language. Someone asks you to do a task for them, and what do you say? Consider it done. Well, that's the prophetic perfect, really. So there's God's promise. And uh, we can trust that promise. We can expect victory. And as we've seen, the walls fell down and there was total victory. So we are in a spiritual warfare. And the war is by no means over yet. In fact, it's hotting up as the end draws near. But... The decisive battle has already been won by Jesus on the cross. And let me stress again, we are joined to him. We are one with him through our faith. And so we're seated with him in the heavenly places. All his enemies are under his feet. And that means that all his enemies are under our feet. And we do have authority in the name of Jesus. And indeed a word will quickly slay the enemy. Someone once asked President Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War in the States, is God on our side? Lincoln replied, my great concern is this, are we on God's side? If we align ourselves with God, if we listen for him, seek him, see what he's doing and follow that, we will be on his side. And then we can confidently say, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Then we can face the enemy confidently and boldly, knowing that God will give us victory because of Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father, give us spiritual perception to see that the real enemies are not human beings, that there is a very real spiritual battle going on. And give us the spiritual ears to hear your directions, that we may fight in your way with your weapons, that we may be courageous, that we may be persevering. Thank you that we do have victory in the name of Jesus. May that become a reality in our lives and our experiences. In Jesus' name, amen.